0: Chapter 16 of Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Easton Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands by James T. Nichols. Chapter 16 A WORLD-FAMOUS CITY, JERUSALEM The history of the world is largely the story of the rise and fall of great cities. In these great centers one can feel the heart-throb of civilization. Some of the great cities of today are famous for their size, such as New York and London. Some for their beauty, like Paris and Rio Janeiro some for their culture and learning, as Boston and Oxford, some for their manufacturing and commercial supremacy, as Detroit and Liverpool. But there is one city on the globe, not nearly as large as Des Moines, not at all beautiful, its people neither cultured nor learned, has no factories and one narrow-gauge railway, takes care of most of its commerce, and yet it is by far the most famous city of all time. It is the city of Jerusalem. The site of the city was once owned by a farmer whose name was Oman. He had a threshing-floor on the top of Mount Moriah. The city, as it is today, is on top of two mountains, but the valley between has been filled up so that it is almost like one continuous mountain-top. Higher mountains are practically on every side, so that the moment one sees the city, he thinks of the scripture. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so is the Lord round about his people. To get an idea of the city as it was when the war broke out, you must imagine a city of about 60,000 people without streetcars, electric lights, telephones, waterworks, sewer system, or any modern improvements, whatever. However, General Allenby's entrance into the city in December 1917 was the beginning of a new era. In three months, the English did more for the city than the Turk did in a thousand years. There is an old Arab legend which says, Not until the river Nile flows into Palestine will the Turk be driven from Palestine. Of course this was their way of saying that such a thing would never come to pass, for the Turk actually believed that he had such a hold on that country that there was no power on earth that could make him give it up. But when the English started from Egypt, They not only built a railroad as they went toward Jerusalem, but not far from the Nile they prepared a great filtering process to cleanse the water, and then laid a twelve-inch pipe and brought the pure water along with them for both man and beast. Wherever they stopped for a length of time in the desert, the glowing sands became pools, as the prophet had forecasted and the desert began to blossom as the rose. Sixty-five days after General Allenby entered the Jaffa Gate into the city of Jerusalem, the water-pipe or system was brought into the city, and the Canadian engineer had made the Arab legend a reality, bringing the sweet waters of the Nile a hundred and fifty miles away into the city of the great king jerusalem is to this day a walled city the walls average some thirty feet high and are about fifteen feet thick at the top it is a little less than two and one-half miles around the city wall but the city itself has outgrown these limitations quite a portion of it being on the outside of the wall the hotel at which the writer stopped while visiting the city some years ago was located outside the wall as are many of the best buildings the streets are narrow the houses have flat tops and many of them are but one or two stories high there was a time however when this city boasted of having the finest building ever erected by the hands of man viz solomon's temple this was built on mount moriah which was a great flat mountaintop of uneven rock. Great arches were built around the sides, and then the top leveled off until the large temple area was formed. Below the sides of this area are still seen the massive rooms that are called Solomon's Stables. The writer rambled for hours through these great underground vaults and saw the holes in the stone pillars where the horses were tied. Here multiplied thousands took refuge during some of the memorable sieges that the city went through. Not far away are the great vaults known as Solomon's Quarries. Here is where the massive stones were made ready, and the master builder's plans were so perfect that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the temple while it was in building. The marks of the mason's tools and the niches where their lamps were placed can be seen to this day. It is a remarkable fact that in sinking shafts alongside the temple wall, great stones have been discovered, but no stone chips are found by them. There are numerals and quarry marks and special mason marks on some of these stones, but they are all Phoenician, thus confirming the Bible account that Hiram, the great Phoenician master-builder, prepared the stones and did the building for King Solomon. Jerusalem has several large churches, the most noted of which is the one built over the traditional tomb of Christ. It is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. For sixteen hundred years there was no question but what this tomb was the identical one in which the body of Christ was laid. This church, as it stands today, is a magnificent building with two great entrances. The sad thing about it is the fact that it is divided up into various chapels, each held by sects of so-called Christians, and a large armed guard has to be kept in the church to keep these fanatical people from killing each other. Before soldiers were placed there, SCENES OF CONFLICT AND BLOODSHED WERE VERY COMMON INDEED, A SAD SPECTACLE FOR JEWS AND MOSLEMS AND OTHER ENEMIES OF THE CHRIST TO GAZE UPON. IN THE CHURCH OF Paternoster, I COUNTED THE LORD'S PRAYER IN THIRTY-TWO DIFFERENT LANGUAGES, INSCRIBED ON MARBLE SLABS, SO THAT ALMOST ANY PERSON FROM ANY COUNTRY CAN READ THIS PRAYER IN HIS OWN LANGUAGE in this connection it is interesting to note that at the gate entrance to the pool of bethesda the scripture story of the healing of the impotent man is written or rather inscribed beneath the arch in fifty-one different languages one of the large churches in the city was dedicated by the ex-kaiser when he visited the city in eighteen ninety eight it was later found out that this german church was built for military purposes during the war a wireless outfit and great searchlights were found in its tower this self-appointed world ruler is represented on the ceiling of the chapel of a building on mount olivet in a companion panel with the deity in this same building the ex-kaiser is represented as a crusader by a figure, and the psalmist is painted with the moustache of a German general. When the ex-kaiser entered the city of Jerusalem, a breach was made in the wall near the Jaffa gate. So, instead of entering through the gate like an ordinary mortal, he went in through a hole in the wall. He would no doubt be glad now to go through another hole in the wall to have his liberty. To the writer, however, perhaps the most interesting place in or about the entire city is the garden tomb and Mount Calvary. This is almost north of the Damascus Gate and on the great highway from Jerusalem from the north. Mount Calvary is only a small hill. The Jews speak of it as the hill of execution or the skull place, as the outline of the hill seen from a certain distance resembles the form of a gigantic skull it is said that no jew cares to pass this place after night and if he passes it in daylight he will mutter a curse upon the memory of him who presumed to be the king of the jews near this skull place is an old tomb that just fits the bible narrative viz. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein never man was yet laid. This tomb was discovered many years ago by General Gordon, and is often spoken of as Gordon's tomb, also called the Garden Tomb. When excavating about it a wall was found which proved to be a garden wall, the end of which butts up against Mount Calvary. One writer, who has examined every nook and corner, says in regard to this tomb, It stands in the mass of rock which forms the northern boundary of a garden, which literally runs into the hillside to the west of Mount Calvary itself. One of the first things noted as the writer went into this tomb was the fact that it is a Jewish tomb. They made their tombs different from those of any other people. That it was a rich man's tomb is also very certain, as is the fact that it dates back to the Herodian period in which Jesus lived. There is also some frescoed work upon it, showing that it was held sacred by the early Christians then the rolling stone and the groove in which it was placed is very interesting this was something like a gigantic grindstone which rolled in the groove and was large enough to cover the opening when the tomb was closed while in and about jerusalem the writer visited the famous upper room the jews wailing place the mosque of omar which stands upon the very spot where Solomon's temple used to stand, the Way of Sorrows, the Homo Arch, the Castle of Antonio, Tower of David, the Pool of Siloam, and a great many other interesting places. The Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, as well as scores of other places, were fascinating, but it would take a large volume to describe them all. End of chapter 16 Recording by Eva Easton, Slotesburg, New York, July 2011